Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Venous and lymphatic malformations are types of congenital vascular anomalies that are present at birth. These malformations can cause a number of complications, including pain, bleeding, and impairment of the affected areas. Current treatment options are limited, and there are no drugs approved for these conditions. Venthira, a bridge bioaffiliate, is developing therapeutics for the treatment of venous and lymphatic malformations by targeting signaling pathways involved in them. We spoke to Tom Rossi, CEO of Anthera, about the company's lead experimental therapy, its first-in-man trial, and how it's leveraging the resources of Bridge Bio. Tom, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dan. We're going to talk about rare vascular anomalies, Venthera, and your effort to develop treatments for these conditions. Perhaps we can begin with what's included in the term rare vascular malformations. Yeah, that's a great question because vascular malformations actually covers a pretty broad waterfront of terminology and conditions. And to make it a little bit more complicated, all those terms have been uh, undergoing a lot of redefinition over the last five or six years. But to bring it up to sort of current status, I would say that the easiest way to think about vascular anomalies is to say that they break down into kind of two broad categories. On one side, you have so-called high-flow lesions, and on the other side, you have so-called low-flow lesions. And what's interesting about that is that over the last few years, there's been a lot of work in discovering the genetic causes of these lesions, and basically the low-flow lesions turn out to be driven by PIK3CA mutations, and the high-flow lesions turn out to be driven by RAS mutations. So it's in the low-flow part of this whole, uh, you know, milure that really Venthera is focused, uh, because we are focused on so-called PIKopathies, and that includes venous malformations, and lymphatic malformations. So people may have a diagnosis of uh, venous or lymphatic malformation, but they may also have diagnoses of syndromes that include these types of malformations like cloves or Klippel-Trenauni syndrome or fava uh, and others. And that is really the waterfront of what we're looking at. That's right in our wheelhouse. As you mentioned, these are genetic conditions, but they're described as being mosaic. What, what does that term mean? 
So here's a really cool thing I learned when I got involved with this program. When we think about our genetic makeup, normally you and I think that pretty much every cell in our body contains the same genetic code that programs the cells of what to do and you know what, what to become. Uh, but that is actually not quite true. The way that mosaicism uh, develops is related to what it actually is. Mosaicism simply means that there are cells in your body that have a different genetic composition than other cells in your body, and they're kind of spread out. They may be in clusters, but it's not every cell in your body. So if that makes sense, you have to think about how does that happen? And in our case, what we're interested in is mosaic conditions that are the result of somatic mutations that happen during embryonic development. So early on uh, during embryonic and fetal development, you'll get endothelial cells in the vasculature or lymphatic system that experience a mutation, and they become the parent cell for other, uh, basically, uh, other daughter cells that share that mutation, and only the daughter cells for that original parent will have that mutation. The rest of your cells in your body will be unaffected, and that's what mosaicism is. How difficult are these conditions to diagnose? How are they typically diagnosed? Diagnosis for these conditions can be a bit of a journey. Uh, many patients that we've talked to, many people who have these conditions, went through a very substantial portion of their lives without knowing what they had. And that's a big source of frustration for people. What they knew early on was that something didn't look right. Either they had an overgrowth of uh, certain limbs in their body or digits, or uh, they had functional impairment of their feet or hands, or they had birthmarks that were bluish in color, or they had uh, birthmarks that looked like basically rashes that don't heal ever and weep a clear lymphatic fluid. So if they were lucky, they found a pediatric dermatologist who understood what they were looking at and got a proper diagnosis. I think it's becoming more common now for people to get the right diagnosis early on. Usually it's first spotted by a pediatrician and referred to a pediatric dermatologist. And oftentimes now people will be sent to or referred to multiple disciplinary centers where a combination of docs who really focus on these types of lesions work together to provide treatment for the patient. And is there a progression to these conditions? You can be born with any level of seriousness. And as people mature, and particularly as they experience adolescence, any given lesion can become worse. Also, over time, what people often say about venous and lymphatic malformations is that gravity is their enemy. Why do they say that? Well, they say that because when your veins are not working well, you really can't have normal blood flow into and out of a limb. And if that part of your body is held below your heart for a long period of time, like you're standing or just walking around and let's say the malformation is in your forearm or your legs, uh, eventually that becomes more and more swollen and more and more uh, dysfunction occurs within the limb that's affected. So over time, things do get worse, but they can start off pretty bad too. So what are the the general manifestations of these conditions and, and 
what is the experience for the patient? What patients complain about the absolute most is pain. So all of these lesions, particularly the venous malformations, are associated with a very high level of pain, and that is the major uh, source of complaint that people have. It's really interesting when you meet people in this community and you talk to them about their lives. I have to say I'm very impressed with the level of stoicism that you encounter because over time what people come to realize is that if they have a functional limitation, there really is no treatment that's going to make it better. And so they just come to accept it. So you might meet somebody who has, let's say, no use of their left arm. And you ask them, well, how bad is it? Oh, it's not too bad. I do everything with my right arm. (laughs) They're very, uh, very adaptable and very willing to adapt. But if you ask them, you know, what would life be like if things were better? Oh, gosh, I'd be able to stand up for more than 10 minutes at a time. I'd be able to walk. I could go to work on a regular basis, go into an office. I'd have a better dating life because I wouldn't have these odd things going on that cause, you know, um, a lot of weepage in certain areas. Uh, And so their aspirational goals are really where you start to see what the impact is on the quality of life. It's a quite high impact. And what treatment options are available, if any? What do people with these conditions do? The treatment options are very limited and invasive. So because of that, Oftentimes, when people are diagnosed, the first course of action is just to wait and see. So I would say that the condition itself is not treated. It's really more like episodic, symptomatic treatment. Now, uh, depending on the level of severity, sometimes the treatment is simply, let's say it's only a cosmetic problem. Let's say you have a blue uh, birthmark on a significant portion of your face. That can be treated with a laser. On the other hand, let's say that you have, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, a severe overgrowth in your lower extremities. Uh, That might have to be treated with a combination of something called sclerotherapy and surgical excisions. Uh, These treatments are uh, difficult, painful. Uh, They're rarely curative. Uh, The lesions tend to come back. And uh, usually it's not a one and done. Usually people have to go through six, 10 rounds of treatment uh, to get whatever improvement they can. And we're often told by people that at the end of all those treatments, they just gave up because sometimes things get better, sometimes they get worse, uh, and they just feel like there's a lack of effectiveness. Now, the good news is that better things are coming. Uh, One of the things that is super exciting in this field is that because the genetic cause of these conditions is now known, Uh, We also know that certain oncology agents that are designed to downregulate PI3K, which is the major uh, kinase that's basically programmed by PIK3CA, that uh, type of medication can have a mitigating effect on these lesions. And in a great compassionate use study that was performed in uh, Paris by Guillaume uh, Canot and his colleagues, uh, they demonstrated that apelacid, which is now approved for oncology and is a PI3K alpha inhibitor, uh, had a great effect on extending the lives of people who are in the terminal phase of illness with severe Cloves uh, syndrome. So uh, better things are coming, and uh, it's a very, very exciting time because of that. 
you're working to inhibit a number of pathways involved in vascular anomalies. These pathways are familiar to me for the role they play in certain cancers. Is there any relationship between cancer and vascular anomalies? Well, the primary relationship is the one you pointed out, and that is that they do share common pathways. What typically happens in cancers is that you have multiple hits. It's usually not one pathway. These, you know, cancer cells are highly dysfunctional, and if you shut down one pathway, usually there'll be a workaround, and another pathway will become activated or dysfunctional uh, or in some way deranged, and that creates metastases and all kinds of other problems. Uh, with venous malformations and lymphatic malformations, these fall into a get, uh, category known as monogenic diseases. So it's really a single point mutation in the PIK3CA or TEC pathway that we're really going after. And that differentiates it a bit from cancer. Uh, now, one of the things that I can see happening in the future is that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are other types of vascular anomalies that are driven by rhesopathies and uh, other other mutations, we could be entering an era of precision medicine in dermatology where, unlike past practice, uh, genetic sampling and genetic analysis could really play a role in choosing the right medication. So I think we can take a lot of cues out of what's been going on in oncology and improve the treatment of these diseases greatly by building off of that. Your lead experimental therapy is a, a topical gel known as VT30. What is VT30 and, and how does it work? VT30 is, uh, as you said, a topical gel formulation of a PI3K alpha preferred inhibitor. Uh, that uh, The way that it works is that when you have one of these malformations, most of them, by the way, the majority of them have some kind of cutaneous involvement. So if you have a malformation with cutaneous involvement, the therapeutic hypothesis that we're working off of is that rather than taking these strong oncology agents and administering them systemically for the rest of someone's life, starting from you know childhood all the way through uh, maturity and adulthood, uh, we don't really know what the you know what the impact of that would be, because these are strong you know, agents with lots of other, you know, things going on in the body when you're taking effective doses. So our therapeutic hypothesis is that if we can deliver a PI3K inhibitor directly to the lesion and concentrate the drug where it's needed, so right tissue, right drug, then uh, minimize the systemic exposure or the potential for systemic exposure, we kind of have a way of getting to a good uh, benefit-risk balance, and that's what we're after. So our approach and the reason that we believe it will work is that we're taking the right drug, meaning that we're going right after the enzyme, the kinase that has experienced a gain of function because of this mutation, and we're doing it in the right tissue through delivering it through the skin into a cutaneous lesion. Does this require some unique drug delivery technology and and what is the drug actually doing once it is delivered i would have to say that the major challenge that we had in this program when we started off is that these pi3k alpha inhibitors are as a class not compounds that have great physical chemical properties for dermal administration in other words they just you know by and large they're too big 
uh, to get through the skin and into the lesion. So we had to start our program by looking very carefully at the medicinal chemistry of these drugs and getting back to a simpler, lighter scaffold that had the right kind of solubility and uh, log P, molecular weight, melting point, all of those things, not optimized for oral absorption, which is what's really been mostly done by uh, lead optimization chemists in this field, but instead starting over with the scaffold and optimizing it for transdermal absorption. Once we did that, we were able to formulate that compound into a gel of our own uh, composition that contains a blend of solvents and skin permeation enhancers to really maximize the amount of drug delivered uh, per square centimeter per day uh, and give us the best chance of having a therapeutic effect. And how did Venthera come to develop this? This is a great story. Venthera came to develop this based on work that was done at MSK. And I just love these stories of invention as I've done a lot of uh, small companies now and always there is at the core of it some really bright uh, scientists or even lay people who make an observation and build off of it. So that's what happened here. Uh, <clears throat> this is work that started at Memorial Sloan Kettering in the lab of Jose Veselka, who was the head of uh, oncology there at the time. And in his laboratory, he was developing a mouse model for a certain type of cancer. And while they were trying to get this mouse model up and running, what they noticed is that the mice developed skin lesions. And they thought that these lesions were hemangiomas. Uh, and it just now, here's where the serendipity comes in. Jose's sister is a prominent pediatric dermatologist in Barcelona. And he sent her photographs of the mice and said, I don't understand why my mice are developing hemangiomas. What do you think? She looked at them. And because of the unique characteristics of venous malformations, namely their bluish color, whereas hemangiomas are red, uh, she was able to say, no, uh, Jose, you discovered a mouse model for venous malformations, and nobody else had <laughs> ever done that. So uh, between those two and a very bright graduate student, Pau Castell, uh, working in the laboratory with, uh, with uh, Jose, they were able to be the first ones to discover that these isolated venous malformations had a specific genetic cause of this PIK3CA overactivation. Uh, and Pau uh, and Jose said, well, why don't we try taking a oncology agent that's designed to target that pathway and see if we can have an effect on, you know, on the, on the lesions in these mice? And guess what? It worked. So based on that, uh, they did a very clever uh, publication, and that came across the bow of the folks at BridgeBio, who were always looking for these monogenic diseases to fit into their portfolio. Uh, they really liked the story, and then they contacted me. I was uh, doing part-time consulting at the time uh, and asked me if I, if I thought that we could develop a product based on that concept. And that's how I got involved with it, and that's how the, the program really started. It uh, started in 2017, and it took us about six months to do that initial work to lay the groundwork, but uh, we, we got it going. You're preparing to begin a first-in-human phase 1-2 trial. What's known about VT30 from the studies that have been done to date? So everything we've done to date on VT30 has been preclinical, uh, and 
the major takeaways from uh, all that work are there's, you know, sort of you can divide it into uh, in vitro studies and in vivo studies. So let's start with the in vitro work. We understand uh, the profile of this. It's a very potent, you know, nanomolar level inhibitor of PI3K. It also has some activity on mTOR, which is further down in the pathway. Uh, so we like that, that it's kind of a dual, uh, but well, preferential for PI3K, but also has some mTOR activity. Uh, we have uh, done a number of experiments in looking at EC50s and inhibition of uh, mutated and uh, normal cells. So we have all that kind of traditional pharmacology behind it. We also have a extensive uh, amount of data on its ability to penetrate the skin uh, by doing something called Franz diffusion cell experiments where we can look in vitro at the transmission of this drug in this formulation across uh, cadaver skin and get a very firm sense of how well this will deliver in actual people. Now, coupled with that, we were able to replicate some of the work that was done at MSK and take this into a, trans, uh, a uh, transgenic mouse model uh, where we were able to look at these allografts and apply the drug to these lesions and monitor uh, the kind of uh, curative or healing effect that the drug has in the lesions. It works very well, and we're able to look at uh, PI3K inhibition by, by uh, focusing on uh, the protein set it affects, phospho-AKT and phospho-S6, and we know we can knock those down, and that's basically, you know, where we are. Oh, and of course, in vivo, we also... As you think about clinical development, is there a clear endpoints you're using? So we're the really the first ones to go into a prospective uh, clinical development program for this type of product, and therefore, our first study is a kind of a learning study. So we know for sure that, you know, you have to cover the basics and it's a phase one uh, program. So we're looking at safety and tolerability. Uh, that's quite easy to define. Uh, we're also looking for evidence of molecular target engagement. Uh, and that is part of our, our program in, in, a, in the two-part study. Uh, and we're also looking for uh, how patients say they respond. So a lot of patient reported outcomes uh, we're testing some standard uh, pros tools, and we'll see where the responses uh, really light up. So it's kind of a learning study for us, uh, and uh, that's what we hope to get out of it. As you mentioned, you're a, a Bridge Bio company. Uh, Bridge Bio develops drugs on a through subsidiaries. I'm wondering, as someone within that structure. How, how do you find you're able to leverage the expertise at BridgeBio or through other sister subsidiaries? Yeah, BridgeBio is really good at that. They're very good at knowledge sharing. They have a kind of a philosophy, an operating philosophy of, uh, you know, that focuses on transparency. So we get to talk a lot with other subsidiaries, even though we're scattered around the country. Uh, we have periodic meetings where uh, we get to see what's happening and uh, get, get program updates and so on and so forth. And anytime we come up against something that is a little bit unexpected or we may have questions about how to handle it, uh, whether it's a regulatory issue or some aspect of the clinical trial design, invariably we will find that there's somebody within the uh, milieu of the bridge bio companies who's encountered a similar issue. Uh, it's very easy to connect with them and get free advice. 
And I love that about it because one of the things I have been frustrated with in past small companies that I've run, it's a little bit isolating. You know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to go up to some of your colleagues uh, in other companies and say, hey, what what exactly happened when you interacted with the FDA? You heard this. What did you do? And so on. It's, it's kind of hard to get through that kind of information. Uh, but that's quite easy within Bridge Bio. And I find that very gratifying. Tom Rossi. CEO of Venthera. Tom, thanks so much for your time today. All right. Thank you, Danny. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.